I'm Yanit Levy of Channel 12 in Tel Aviv. And I'm Jonathan Friedland of The Guardian in London. And we are Unholy, two Jews on the news from Keshet Podcast. Hello, Jonathan. Hello, Yonit. How are you doing? Well, I know you probably didn't remember, but it is our podversary, and I got you a little something. Oh, come on, you didn't. You mean because it's a year. I, li- I like to get gifts, you know this about me, and I got you a little, do you see this? A little trophy, and it oh. says, world's best <laughs> Jewish co-host. Um, and uh, I don't know, it's kind of reminiscent of the Arsenal-Liverpool game tonight. And if you think it's a cheap knickknack I stole from my son's shelf, that's because it is. But <laughs> it's yours whenever we do meet, which will probably be in three years or so. So what I can say to people who are not on this Zoom call is that it is like one of those little fake gold statues of trophies that kids who play junior soccer are given Maybe. at the end of the season. Maybe, but I didn't but it make says, the new world's label. best Jewish co-host. That is so sweet. Um, now, I was slightly reticent to making a big deal of our podversary of marking a year. Because, because I was you didn't remember it, it like, that's why. Well, there was that, but there was also the slight fear that it was like those teenagers who say oh, my God, we've been dating for, like, three weeks now, and it's, like, very special. Um, So I had that sort of slight fear um, that it was that. But, um, no, it feels like a a week of special things and landmarks because I made a first visit to the cinema. I say first. Actually, it's not the first because I did go and see the Bond movie. But apart from that, the first one, I went to see the film Licorice Pizza, which, if in a normal week, I would be talking about it at great length because it has a has Jewish characters, even Israeli characters. There is much to discuss, but actually, we should pick all of this up with our very special guest this week because we are going to be joined by David Badil, who began life as a uh, comedy legend and very successful stand-up comic, and now uh, is a writer, documentary maker, uh, filmmaker, and has written an amazing book called Jews Don't Count, which we're going to be talking about. Um, but even Licorice Pizza and the excitement of David Badil coming on the show cannot overwhelm what is basically dominating my life at the moment, and that is Boris Johnson and what might be, might be, the last days of Boris Johnson. That's pretty incredible, right? I mean, we talked about scandal after scandal. The man has nine lives, and you think that now might just be the the end of it? Um, it might be the end of it. I emphasize might because... He has this Teflon coating. He's pulled off the kind of Houdini escapes so often. And I can even game out how he gets out of this one in my mind. But yeah, huge controversy here because Britain's Prime Minister, the man who imposed all the lockdown rules in that first really dread wave of the pandemic, it now emerges that on May the 20th, 2020, which was really when everyone was seriously locked down, he and his staff were partying partying in the garden at Downing Street, um, rosé wine, gin, a trestle table, groaning with food. I mean, it is just jaw-dropping. And he had said, uh, you know, that he he was shocked and disgusted, he said a few weeks ago, to hear that there were parties. Now it emerges he was there. <laughs> he was forced uh, in the House of Commons to admit it. 
he did an apology, and now it's the question of whether the Conservatives turn on him or not. Do they think he's a is an is an asset or a liability? But we'll see how that plays out. But that has been, being totally honest with you, that has been consuming many of my waking hours and much of my professional life these last few days and it will for the next week or so i'm sure reminded me of that scene in casablanca right where louis is saying i'm shocked that there's gambling happening and then the guy comes up to him and says you're winning sir um that is exactly shocked shocked (laughs) the repetition i know it's a perfect moment and boris johnson is yes shocked shocked to find there were parties while he's literally standing in the event himself so it's quite something well, in this, uh, uh, in, in my neighborhood, not quiet for, in, in politics, not quiet for the coalition uh, either. By the way, COVID here in just staggering numbers. The experts advising the prime minister just said this week that anything between two and four million Israelis will get COVID in the next two weeks. We're a nation of nine million. So that sounds like a lot. And it kind of feels like everyone you know uh, is 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 uh, getting COVID. The country, I'm not saying it's shutting down, but kind of voluntarily, uh, I think, um, slowing down for sure. Um, so, so we're talking about crises, and 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 definitely the Bennett uh, Lapid government, ever since it exists, is proving that every week is a new crisis. What happened this week uh, is that clashes erupted between the Bedouin tribe, a Bedouin tribe in the Negev, and police. It's over. Uh, 1,250 acres of land in which the JNF, the Jewish National Fund, or Keren Kayemet Israel in Hebrew, uh, is uh, planting trees only in Israel. That is a, can be a coalition crisis. And I remind you that Bennett's coalition is uh, dependent upon one important party, which is the Ram Party, United Arab Party, that the Bedouins are a large uh, part of their base. And they were very upset at this uh, planting. They said it's on their land. Huge uh, clashes for two days. And of course, importantly, the Ram Party boycotting votes in the Knesset, kind of signaling we're not going to uh, accept this. Look, I assume it will be resolved, Jonathan, but it just kind of goes to show you a little bit like COVID. You thought the coalition crisis is over the minute this government uh, uh, kind of took the reins from Netanyahu. The truth is it really, the political crisis is continuing, is, is an ever continuing thing, maybe a little bit like COVID in this country. I mean, always this was going to be a source of tension, wasn't it? Having, you know, these right-wing parties, Naftali Bennett himself as prime minister, and yet literally an Islamist party in the coalition. I think what's interesting to people outside is they get the thing about occupied territories and anything there, planting a tree, cutting down a tree, everything is so significant. This is interesting because this is inside Israel proper, as it were, pre-1967 Israel in the Negev. But I suppose what? It's the idea of planting trees on land that is historically or unofficially... It, it, associated with the Bedouins, it's their land, so don't start putting JNF trees there. It goes to the issue of unrecognized villages and the fact they don't, they're not part of the power grid, they're the poorest kind of part of the population. They think that this is their land and this is their livelihood, right? Because this is what they do. Um, and the, uh, this is also, of course, as you mentioned, the question of left and right. The right, and especially the, the, the far right, will say, this is our land, every part of it, right? And we can do whatever we want. The Bedouins will say, but wait, this is ours. In a normal climate, this is resolved, right? It's 1,250 acres. You cut it in half. You say, this is yours. This is our... It can be resolved. The question is, is if there's a will to resolve it, especially because the housing minister is from the far right. The Ram party is, is as you said, an Islamist party. They need to really want to do it, and they still have to stick together. So that is that is a question in itself. All of this might explain why our special guest this week 
makes a point of having nothing to do <laughs> with Israel and never talking about it. I am talking about uh, the writer, comedian, documentary filmmaker, uh, brother of my former madrich in Habon, uh, Ivor Badil. His name, of course, is David Badil. Now, the reason we want to talk to you, uh, among many things, is your book, which is called Jews Don't Count. It comes out in paperback in the UK on February the 3rd, but it made a huge splash um, it, it, when it came out uh, last year in Harbour. And it's got, we're, we're going to let you completely unpack the argument because it's such an interesting argument. But the it, it got new salience with an article you wrote this week about the casting of Helen Mirren as Golda Meir in a biopic of uh, Israel's first woman prime minister. And you objected to the fact that, uh, or raised anyway the question of, um, uh, of this part going to a non-Jewish uh, performer. My first question to you really is, does it actually matter who plays Golda Meir in a movie? So Jews Don't Count, the book, uh, which is about essentially how it's different for Jews. That's what it's about uh, within the strictures and discourse that we, I guess, call identity politics. I spent about 10 pages talking about casting and I'm now going to claim some credit, I think, for the fact that Maureen Lipman in Britain and Sarah Silverman in the US, both of whom have read Jews Don't Count, have uh, got busy with this because before Maureen Lipman said this about Golda Meir, Sarah Silverman has said it about Catherine Hahn playing Joan Rivers uh, and um, Felicity Jones playing Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Uh, and my point is that casting... I'm not really that interested in acting. <laughs> I'm a bit interested. What I'm bothered about is the discrepancy in the way that Jews are treated as regards other minorities. And casting is a good way into that because casting has become a battleground uh, that illustrates that with the idea of authenticity casting. And the idea of authenticity casting means that it's becoming more and more problematic and has done for some time now for casting directors to cast an actor who is not a member of Minority X if the character is Minority X. And this obviously begins with people who are black or brown obviously playing black or brown characters, but it's now extended to across the range of minorities and not just, um, not just ethnicities. The point is there's a lot of outrage when people feel they are not being represented authentically because minority experience in identity politics is always uh, monitored very closely for the idea that you are being, you know, not included, not represented properly, whatever. It's about a notion of respect, uh, a notion that, you know, this, it's somehow disrespectful to minorities uh, to have them played by people who are not of that minority because it might smack of caricature. Uh, and all of this is a discussion. But the point is, the argument has been won. In casting directors' offices all over Britain and America, certainly, where basically it's now impossible to cast someone who is not of a minority in a minority character role, except for Jews, right? As ever, it's different for Jews. And so uh, that's why I raise an issue about Helen Mirren playing Golda Meir. Not because I'm really that bothered about whether or not Helen Mirren can get the nuances of playing Golda Meir. You know, I, I, I have to say I really love the book, and I'm kind of zooming out from the casting uh, issue, which which I think we'll return to, to say what you're actually saying, if I can put it in your, my own words, is saying there's a blind spot, right? Especially uh, in the progressive left, there's a blind spot. They don't see anti-Semitism as a form of racism, uh, if I'm if I'm accurately uh, um, saying, uh, quoting you. And I, I wonder why you think that is. 
Um, Why that blind spot? Well, uh, I provide in the book many, many examples of that. Uh, it's not just they don't they don't see it as racism. They don't see it as important within the conversation about discrimination. Uh, there's a sort of confusion about anti-Semitism being seen as religious it- intolerance. And a lot of, I think, racists do that. They suggest, like, Jews are not a race, and this isn't racism, it's a religion. And what I always say to that is, I'm an atheist, and that would have got me no free passes out of Auschwitz. So kill that one's just dead. It's about racism because it's an accident of birth that I'm Jewish. I do not believe in God, and I do not pray, and so therefore the religion is kind of irrelevant. Uh, then the other- You don't believe in God that isn't Larry David, you mean? Yeah, exactly. As I've said before, I don't believe in God. I'm Jewish, I'm very Jewish. I don't believe in God, but I believe in Larry David. That's that's what I've said. The second thing which is very important is I think Jews, certainly Ashkenazi Jews, are seen as white by many people, and they just lump them in with white people and whiteness as we know is at the sort of apex of what might be considered to be the power structure that we exist in now so therefore it disinvites you as it were to any claim for minority status or minority protection if you're white but my position is that Jews are actually white or non-white depending on the politics of the observer you know as far as the right are concerned for many years, Jews are non-white. White supremacists absolutely see Jews as non-white. Obviously, Nazis saw Jews as non-white, whereas it seems to me that progressives sometimes see Jews as sort of ultra-white because, and this is, sorry, this is the central reason why Jews are disqualified from this uh, minority status, is that Jews are seen as powerful and privileged. And this is shared by the far right and the far left. To a large extent, and Israel is part of this, uh, Jews are pushed almost to the point where not only do they not need it, but they are, in fact, the oppressors. I really want to pick up the Israel stuff, which I think we will do in a minute, and I know your needs got some thoughts on that. Just before we do, though, I just wonder the extent to which everything you've described, Jews themselves, or at least some Jews, some on some level collude with this, that mm. they don't necessarily demand mm. the protections of a minority, and in some ways bridle at being bracketed with other ethnic minorities, and whether, I don't know about the casting thing, whether that was part of it, but often are quite slow to make the sorts of demands that other minorities are quick to make. To what extent is this on us? Oh, that's definitely true. The book uh, is a critique of progressives for their neglect of, you know, Jewish identity and Jewish concern and anti-Semitism within the conversation, it's also a critique of Jews uh, for particularly British Jews, I would say, although I think there's lots of American Jews who might be uh, the same, but certainly British Jews uh, have got a sort of inbuilt, uh, you know, uncertainty about raising their Jewish identity above the parapet. Someone once said to me that the headline in the Jewish Chronicle every week can be boiled down to they hate us. And I said, no, it's they hate us and let's not make a fuss about it. And and in a way, that's the key, because what is identity politics? It's making a fuss about it. It's making a fuss about stuff that for many years was allowed to be let lie. By the way, I should say, a lot of the stuff I've been talking about, I think is good. I mean, I, I sort of don't make the value judgment that much in the book because I'm trying to model something. But there's many things, I think, in identity politics that is just correct. There are structural biases in society. There are unconscious biases against all sorts of minorities. And I think identity politics is trying to correct that. But I think it has a problem with Jews. And that shows the limits of it. I um, I have to ask the Israeli question here. I'm reading from your uh, book. Uh, it says this. For those of you who might be wondering, my position on Israel is I don't care about it more than any other country. And to assume I do is racist. 
You go on to say, Israelis aren't very Jewish anyway. They're too macho, too ripped, and aggressive and confident. Um, there's a lot to unpack there. Uh, by the way, uh, Jonathan calls me every week and he says, you're too aggressive and too <laughs> macho. He really does. He complains about it. You're too macho. Okay. <laughs> um, and, um, and so I was, I was wondering a few things, David. The first thing is, can you really detach yourself from Israel completely? Or is there a part somewhere in the back of your mind behind all the books and the great football song and the jokes that says to yourself, says to you, you know, it's it's important that Israel exists. It's important that it's there. Or not at all. Okay, that's a really good question. So first of all, about the ripped macho thing. For people who haven't read Jews Don't Count, you know, I am a comedian. It's a serious polemic, but I do not not put jokes in it. There's quite a lot of Although I assume that what I just did being a nerd analyzing a joke is terrible. No, I it know wasn't terrible. I, I, but I it, still it wasn't terrible, but it is ask a, about it. It is sort of a gag. Um, you know, I it, it leads on, in fact, to a gag from my film, The Infidel. I, I wrote a film called The Infidel, right. um, which is about a Muslim who discovers he was biologically born Jewish. Uh, and uh, his Jewish frenemy, who he makes, says to him about Israelis, you know, Israelis, Jews without angst, without guilt, so not Jews at all. Uh, and so that's really the joke I'm I was going to use that for my follow-up question. Okay. So <laughs> but but uh, in terms of... Uh, so, it's complicated because... I do think what I, what you've just said about Israel, I do not have a deep emotional attachment in the way that some Jews who don't live there do have to Israel. But it is also useful for me, and to put that on the front foot, to say that, because, as I'm sure you're aware, in the conversation about anti-Semitism, which happens you know, online or wherever it, wherever it happens, the first thing that people say, certainly that the left says, if you want to call out someone for anti-Semitism or say anti-Semitism is being neglected or whatever you want to say, if you want to talk about anti-Semitism, the first thing that people who don't want to talk about that, which is to some extent the far left, want to say is, oh, this is all about Israel. You, you're a Zionist and you're, you're basically working on behalf of Israel or your sympathies are with Israel. That's why you're saying this. And that's their key reflex when anti-Semitism is brought up. And it's so important to me to be able to talk about anti-Semitism and talk about Jewish identity without having that idiot canard thrown at me immediately uh, that I foreground my sort of, what I call in the book my mehness, Israel meh, I say at one point, meaning very importantly that for me, I don't think as a Jew, I have to have an incredibly strong position on Israel either way. It is a foreign country for me. I'm a British Jew. My Jewishness is very important to me. I'm not Israeli. I don't feel very emotionally connected to Israel. It feels to me like a different country. I very much do respond to the ways in which Israel is brought into the discussion all the time. And I do respond to the way that anti-Semitism and anti-Zionism is blurred and clouded. All that is important. But I can't honestly say, and I feel slightly bad about this because you are Israel, I can't honestly say... <laughs> that I'm secretly hiding this immense emotional connection with the the Holy Land because I don't have it, in truth. Don't worry, we're machos and aggressive. Yeah, we, yeah. Don't, we don't feel, yeah. you know, we, it's hard to hurt our feelings. Yeah, I really get that, and I get particularly, David, what you say about it being useful. And in a way, it is useful not just for you. It's almost useful that you're there as someone who cannot be pilloried as really a Zionist shill yeah. and, you know, a, a ventriloquist for, for Israel. That's useful. I'm just wondering, though whether it means that your it limits your ability to speak about the, this part of the Jewish experience, which is that for so many Jews, 
their identity is bound up with Israel. And therefore, that move to say, well, look, in your case, it's true. Uh, you can't be in any way you know, linked to or held accountable for, for what Israel does. But other Jews can't quite make that move as neatly as you can, because they do feel bound up with it, and yet also simultaneously shouldn't be held responsible for it. And so other most Jews, I would say, particularly in Britain, where the attachment to Israel is particularly sharp, they do need to be able to carve out a space which is simultaneously attached to Israel and yet not um, you know, forced to, to, to be judged by it. And they can't all do what you do. No, I agree with that. But I would say something else, Jonathan, which is I think my point about being a non-Zionist is I don't want to be defined as a Jew and in the things I'm saying about Jewishness by Israel either way. It's racist to assume that I am, and that includes anti-Zionists, if you see what I mean. So I, when I see Jews who feel the need to be extremely anti-Zionist, it's hard for me not to think you are saying this because you're so def- defending yourself against the various accusations that come at you from for sure. the left and from the press of conversation about Israel. So you've chosen to take a position of extreme anti-Zionism or whatever it is. Um, and I kind of think like I'm not having that either way, right? I'm not defining myself and my Jewish identity by virtue of that argument because that seems to me to be racist. It's about that creates collective responsibility. Um, and I agree with you that I don't share in maybe that Jewish experience you've described, but I also don't share in the other one. In yeah. other words, the point for you is the, the non is important to be distinguished from the anti. Yeah, and it's not just, as I say, it's not just about the argument. It's not just about semantics. You know, it's complex. You know, I made the Larry David joke earlier or whatever, but it's very complex, my Jewishness. I mean, everyone's Jewishness is complex. I'm actually writing a book about (laughs) atheism at the moment, which spends a lot of time, probably too much, trying to work out exactly what it means to be a Jewish atheist and includes the idea that even though I am deeply, deeply an atheist, I acknowledge the fact that the religion must mean something to me. How else would you express and chart a Jewish survival except through the religion, right? What I want to do is try and understand it and define it and see it as a, as a thing. And the bogging down of it on either side in the actions of the state of Israel is... I'm constantly trying to sort of cut that away for me to understand what my Jewishness is. You see, and so yeah, maybe I can't share in that, but for me, that actually helps to define what I mean by being Jewish. Can I just no, say I something, you're... by the way, in those terms? Which, so in the Infidel, there's an actor who plays. This probably wouldn't be allowed now, although he is Iraqi, but I don't know. He plays an Islamic fundamentalist preacher called Igal Naor. Do you know him, Igal Naor? Mm-hmm. An Israeli actor. So at mm-hmm. one point, I'm in a trailer with him. And the film obviously has got loads of stuff in it about Jewishness or whatever. And I can't remember why he said this, but it was very striking that he said it. He said at one point, we're talking about Jewish things. He says, Jewish Muis, basically, I'm Israeli. But, so I think lots of Israelis think of themselves primarily as Israeli rather than Jewish. Right? This notion that they are somehow this British Jew idea, that that's the summation of all things Jewish. I'm not sure. I, I mean, you can tell me you're neat, but I think there are some no. Israelis for whom Jewishness isn't such a big deal. Israeliness is. The interesting thing is, I think the irony is that your struggle with trying to define atheism and Judaism here, you would feel very comfortable with that. It would not be a question to try and explain how can you, you be Jewish and an atheist. 
I think in Israel it would be easier. But my question to you, by the way, I think you asked me a question. I'm going to throw a question okay. back at you because that's a Jew, the Jewish thing to do. Yeah. Um, is what binds us? Like all of the three people in this conversation, does something bind us at yeah, all? Well, think, or am I, I no, you know, what is that thing? Jewishness binds us. Jewishness binds us. But, you know, that's a good example, right? Um, if you were from Russia and Jewish... I would feel bound to you by your Jewishness, but I would feel almost no connection. Well, <laughs> probably like five five generations back, my families were fleeing from pogroms, so Russia might be a bad example. But you know what I mean, you know, <laughs> yeah. uh, or an Ethiopian Jew. I would feel a connection with you as a Jew. I wouldn't feel a connection with you for, as an Ethiopian. And so, to be honest with you, that is what I feel about Israel. I feel like I feel I do feel connected with you I, uh, as a Jew, uh, and you'll have a different version of Jewishness to me because all Jews do. But I don't. No, I, I don't feel uh, that, like... And what do you think, Jonathan? Well, I think it's... Um, yeah, the, the, the Israel... And this is... Well, I think it goes back to, in a way, a version of what I was saying at the beginning, which is, yes, of you you feel a connection with your need because you're both Jews, and therefore I think that's a connection with Israel because Israel is, like it or not, the biggest Jewish community in the world. And it is the big... The Jewish society that is producing Jewish culture even before you get to the language... And therefore, for you, whose soul, you know, entire Twitter bio is the word Jew, who is so strongly Jewish, I don't think you can carve off the Jew the Israel piece of Jewish identity as neatly and usefully as you do. And that's sort of what I was driving at before. But that a lot, that, but a lot yeah, of you're that connected. is to do, Jonathan, isn't it, with the singularity of Israel? Because you wouldn't say that about a Muslim who wasn't interested in Saudi Arabia or Iran No, you wouldn't, because 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 there's only one. There's only one Jewish country. I know, country but that only one, biggest... that doesn't feel enough to me to make <laughs> yeah, me want to I mean, think about it's... it emotionally a lot because it's the only one. Do you know what I mean? I, uh, that's not enough. I, I... Well, it's, 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 uh, no, I, look, it's fascinating territory to get into. It is just the one place where the new Jewish culture is being formed at a huge rate. You know, you're doing your bit and Larry David's doing his bit, but there's a country that is kind of pumping this stuff out 24-7 with mm. every broadcast your neat does and every song on the radio and every movie. So if you're strongly Jewish, which I am and you are, then there's some connection to, there has to be, to the throbbing, beating heart of Jewish life in the world in 2022, I would say. Okay. If not, you just stepped on the whole premise of our podcast, so you got to agree, <laughs> we agree did. with some I wanted of it. To do, can I just go back to, to our starting point, which I know is is hardly the big argument because the because the big you're making such a larger argument than acting. But I just was really interested in this one thing about just to be quite literal about it, which is what does happen when non-Jews play Jews, and you you nodded to it in your Guardian piece, which people should go and read when you talked about a kind of way that they do with shrugs and ticks but just because you are a performer and you've you know directed or written films i'm just very interested to know what do non-jews do when they start playing jew jews have tended to write jews very self-deprecatingly uh so yes. for example the first time i heard the word jew face because i didn't come up with it it was about a musical called falsettos uh which mm -hmm. in 2019 came to london and had a completely non-jewish cast playing very very jewish jews and what i mean by that is the writers had written them very whiny and kvetchy and arguing with each other all the time and obsessed with food and sex and blah 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 and you know had hit a lot of the cliches some of which were funny some of which might not be but the point is it's very negative in the way that jews are yeah. 
Other minorities, I would say, this is a generalization, tend to write themselves more empowered than Jews do, right? But we tend to write ourselves down. So then what you're saying is to non-Jewish actors, go and clown up the Jew. You're saying that. And that's when yeah. it becomes extremely complicated that they're played by non-Jews. Can I just say we one need other to talk thing? about we need to talk about dirty thing? dancing. I really want to say point. this about yes. Golda Meir Go and Helen Mirren. Yes. Um, I found myself in a conversation about it last night with Variety, who asked me about it, saying, when it comes to the playing, I am probably, and this relates to the Israel thing again, less bothered about Helen Mirren playing Golda Meir, who's a big stateswoman, and you sort of imagine a big actress plays that person, than I am about a film that she did about four years ago, and I can't remember the name of it now, The Gold something. Anyway, it's about the portrait of Adele Bloch-Bauer. Uh, and it's about the the fact that that portrait, as you may know, by Gustav Klint, was owned by a Jewish family and then was stolen by the Nazis and the Austrian government refused to give it back because it ended up in a museum. And when I think about that, and this demonstrates what I'm talking about, because that's nothing to do with Israel, that for me is such a deep and complex Jewish experience. It's a really deep and complex Jewish experience. The idea that the Austrian government was still essentially perpetuating the looting of, 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 of assets from Jewish families and a, and a Jewish woman had to somehow fight that in the courts. That's when I think, like, does a non-Jew really... Are they really able to feel that experience? Whereas a big stateswoman, well, that's what actors do, I think. You know, they, they impersonate... The, the, the film like, was called um, Woman in Gold. Woman in Gold. I think that's really interesting because... In one case, it's diaspora Jew she was playing, and in this other case, she's playing an Israeli woman, and maybe some of the Jews don't count stuff doesn't quite apply in that case, to do with power, perhaps. But this is, I'm getting into your territory, Yoni. No, the, what I'm wondering about um, here, first of all, when there's a caricature of a Jew, you know, are you worried about the caricature? Doesn't that offend you and not who the actor is behind it? And the other thing, and this is really niche, but if you're talking about Jews being the minority and feeling like the, the marginalized identity that only Jews can understand while playing Jews, does that mean that Israelis who have never been, or never felt like a minority, because they're obviously not, can't be in a Jewish role? Like Gal Gadot or Leo Raz or whatever can't do that. I know this is a very niche question. No, that's a really good question. And it sort of relates a bit to what we just said about Golda Meir whether it's different because she, in a way, is not a marginalised identity within Israel. Right. Um, I, I think it's really complicated because I think, you know, we are bound by being Jews and she's still Jewish and it still represents that discrepancy. Um, I think that actors, it's hard for actors to get away from a certain inbuilt caricatureness with Jews. I mean, an interesting one that I bring up in the book is Al Pacino in Hunters, uh, mm -hmm. Al Pacino in Hunters is uh, playing, it's full of, you know, he's a very, very famous actor and a method actor, but it's full of Jewish ticks and shrugs and, you know, oying and blah, blah, blah. Turns out he's not <laughs> Jewish in it, right? But I sort of think that doesn't matter because throughout the, uh, you know, throughout Hunters, people think he is Jewish. Uh, and in a way, it's like buying into this idea of how you play Jewish. Um, so, I don't know. I mean... I, I guess if we can try and be as simple about it as possible, if you are going to caricature a Jew, i.e. Fagin, then that should definitely be a Jew playing that. Because it is okay, we know, it's okay for a minority to make jokes about minorities. Dave Chappelle can make as many jokes about black people as he likes, and I can make as many jokes about Jewish people as I like. 
Okay, but generally you can't do that anymore for reasons that are good and bad across minorities, right? Um, and a Jew playing Fagan and deciding to play Fagan very Jewishly, I think that's definitely more okay than a non-Jew doing it. Mm-hmm. This thing about um, Jews writing down Jews, I did mention as a little aside because I did happen to see Dirty Dancing over the uh, holiday period, and it's just an unbelievably negative depiction. And it's such a Hollywood trope, which is the Jewish life is suffocating and cloying and neurotic, and then the ideal is that you find someone from outside, in that case, Patrick Swayze. David, I'm, I'm still no. stuck on the fact that Jonathan watched Dirty Dancing. No, like, David, you didn't pause on that for a second? <laughs> yeah. You know what? It's, I don't know that I've ever seen Dirty Dancing, and it's made me want to watch it more. Um, oh, you've got to go and see it. I, I think it's, I didn't it, it, it had a Jewish component. It's got a Jewish component. Oh, oh, oh Jonathan finds a Jewish, a Jewish component in every film. No, no, it's, a pro- it's about Jews in the Catskills, and the young. it's a young coming-of-age story, and the protagonist is, is a woman who, of course... He's paired off with some nerdy, unappealing Jewish boy and sees the non-Jewish boy as the is, is everything you would want, you know. Oh, and, I, and it's I, about I really America and immigration. I, it's, you know, I knew what it was things. about. And if you'd asked me, I'd have said, isn't it about some repressive Christian community where, where they're not allowed to dance? I think you're thinking of Footloose. Oh, you see, I'm confusing it with Footloose. (laughs) Yes, you are, and that is about oppressive Christians. We could go on for so long. I feel as if we could do a whole podcast just on... I think you know suspiciously much about 80s dance movies. Oh, yeah, no, I'm good on this subject. Um, (laughs) There is so much more we could talk about. You know, it's agony to break off. The book is called Jews Don't Count. It comes out in the UK on February the 3rd. There is no Hebrew edition of this book. Yeah, what about the Hebrew edition? What are we doing about that? I don't know why. It's out in America. It's out in Germany I mean for heaven's sake you know I don't know why it hasn't come out in Israel Um, I'm not Sally Rooney Um, David uh, thanks so much for coming on Unholy my pleasure I really enjoyed it thank you Yonit thank you thank you so much So we have awards to hand out, as always, very much paling in comparison to the fantastic trophy, which you presented me with, your need at the top of this week's edition. That, of course, is the award to end all awards. But our weekly awards are for Chutzpah and for Mensch. I'm going to make a nomination for Chutzpah. Obviously, it should be... Boris Johnson, hands down, because the chutzpah are saying you're uh, of setting the rules for the country and then breaking them. But I've got another candidate, and that is um, State Senator Doug Mastriano, who announced his candidacy for governor of Pennsylvania and did it by opening the proceedings with the blowing of the shofar, the traditional ram's horn that is used uh, around the time of Jewish New Year and, and to close out Yom Kippur. Um, this is something they did. They've not just done this as a one-off. They did it as well, Trump supporters, when they kicked off the big January the 6th uh, protest that turned, obviously, into that insurrection attempt on Capitol Hill. I saw it myself, actually, the blowing of the shofar at uh, various Donald Trump events in 2016. Apparently, it signals that the battle is not just political, it's also spiritual. But what it makes me think, it's a chutzpah. These people constantly stealing and taking iconography and symbols that are important to Jews. Like, what is it with these people? They, it was, you know, the, we've talked about the yellow star taken by the anti-vax crowd, which is just an abysmal poor taste and really offensive. But these are, this is not your symbol to take. Um, Republican state senator and Trump supporter Doug Mastriano. And I would say the same to um, 
all the other trumpists who, you know, if you want a trumpet symbol, get a trumpet. You don't need to use uh, the shofar. That's ours. Back off. So you get a chutzpah award, Doug Mastriano, and all the rest of it. Hands off my shofar, says Mr. Friedland. And exactly. it's not a euphemism. Yeah. So, uh, men's award. <laughs> um, I have two. I'll be very brief about this because it's a celebratory episode, anniversary, blah, blah. So I can give out two. One is a story coming from the West Side Rag. You ask yourself what that is, Jonathan. It's a leading scoop in gossip uh, newspaper for Upper West Siders in Manhattan. And they tell the story of Representative Jerry Nadler, a Democrat from uh, New York, obviously walking through uh, next to a synagogue that didn't have minyan. It didn't have uh, enough people for the Jewish prayer quorum. So they called him in and he immediately agreed to sit with them for about uh, two hours uh, in a discussion about um, about the, the, the week, and that's what uh, they did. I think it's a nice story, and I just wanted to say West Side Rag a few times. Uh, and the other uh, mention award I wanted to uh, give is for Israeli scientists who are sending into the International Space Station 28 hummus chickpeas. It's sort of called a, it's a synthetic biology experiment to grow hummus in space. And if it works, it will be the superfood for the astronauts, and we'll be able to say our hummus is out of this world. So I think that is a very <laughs> cool story. It's a risk there that you're going to touch off the hummus wars where people argue, is hummus Israeli cuisine? Is it Palestinian cuisine? Is it Middle Eastern cuisine? Falafel, etc. That is a perennial argument. We are not going to have that argument here on Unholy, partly because we have run out of time. It's our time to say thank you to all of you for listening. And if you've enjoyed it, please recommend it to your friends, uh, word of mouth, and so on. We are at Two Jews on Instagram. Do the thing with the ratings, the reviews, all of that stuff, wherever you get your podcast. And we will say our thank yous to Lior Friedman, our EP, to Rom Atik Omer Prima Tanirad Eshen, and a special thanks to Richard Myron and uh, Jonathan. We shall meet next week. I will uh, eagerly await your present for me. Oh, no. It's present pressure. <laughs> <laughs>